I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by writer, actress, and comedian, Z-Way. As you may remember, Z-Way came to prominence at the height of the pandemic, when most of us were trapped at home, endlessly doom-scrolling in search of signs of life. For most of 2020, though, Z-Way would take to Instagram Live every Thursday at 8 p.m., where she would conduct a series of charged interviews with actors, authors, and fellow comedians, many of whom had either been quote, canceled, or had recently made a public misstep on social media. These conversations, especially when the subjects were white, would invariably turn to the matter of race. And this is where things got famously complicated, as Z-Way would pose questions like, Can you name five Black people off the top of your head? How many Black friends do you have? And when you say Black people, do you capitalize the B? Comedian Larry Wilmore called these IG Live performances a kind of racial high-wire act that would often reveal the subject's ignorance or self-involvement, or frankly, both. Z-Way would then move these interviews out of her Brooklyn bedroom and into a studio where she would create her self-titled late-night variety program for Showtime. Starting in 2021, it ran for two excellent seasons before abruptly being canceled this past spring. She's recently returned with her debut collection of essays entitled Black Friend, which you can now find wherever you get your books. 
She's also at the tail end of her tour, so if you'd like to check out one of her shows, visit zway.com. That's zway.com. For today, I wanted to talk to the writer-comedian about the art of interviewing, the influence of the Colbert Report, the power of satire, why she turned to memoir, and how she found her singular voice after years of searching. That's all coming up next with our guest, Z-Way. I hope you enjoy. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel car. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. 
Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Seaway. Hello, Sam. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. You have called your work a modern deconstruction of the American interview, which has devolved from thoughtful discourse to inconsequential conversations about celebrities promoting their movies. Yes. So I was thinking we try to do the former a little bit if you're up for it. The former being what? Something thoughtful. Got it. I think. Sure. You write in your excellent new book, Black Friend. With everything that I create, my question is always, why am I doing this? Is it for money? Is it for attention? Is it to help people? Is it to heal myself? Is it because if I am anything less than perfect, I feel I do not deserve love? Now that you've finished writing, how would you answer those questions in this moment? Ooh, so your question is just repurposing my question. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, how would I answer that? Let's see. Is my book for money? Is my book for what are the questions? Remind me. <laughs> Attention mm. to help people mm. to heal myself mm. and for money. All of the above, I would say. Honestly, <laughs> I got paid to write a book, but writing a book was a really difficult process for me. And interestingly enough, I found that in the first draft of the book, there was something fundamentally missing in my writing, which was that I wasn't being vulnerable or connecting with my audience. And so I thought it would be a disservice to the people who have supported me both recently and for the majority of my career mm -hmm. to not offer something with a little more weight. But the fear of that with vulnerability is that if I show myself, will I regret it because people won't love to see me? So I think that that's part of the process, especially with a book, which took me three years to write. So every single one of those temples, I definitely hit. How do you feel now that it's out there? I feel relief that it's over, honestly. <laughs> What's interesting is that when you write a book, you write a book and you turn it in for the last time. And then that is so relieving because my book would haunt me every day during the process because I'd think, why am I not writing? Why is it not finished? Uh -huh. And so I got to that point and then immediately you have to do an audiobook, uh -huh. which requires you to sit down and read it, which was not, I won't say painful, but I will say it was work. It was labor. Can I add, I listened to the audiobook oh, really? as well. Oh my gosh. I would want to have like someone else read it for me. I, mean, I wanted I, someone. I wanted Chet <laughs> Hanks to read it, actually. People said no, but I was actually adamant. Did he say no? No, he didn't say no. On my side of the street said no. We did not want to go out to didn't him. Didn't even go out to him. Yeah. I mean, that would have been... Iconic, amazing, freeing, liberating, <laughs> relieving. So how was it reading passages of your book that are deeply vulnerable, that you have already lived and then like 
worked hard to put them into an essay. Reliving it is not challenging to me. Writing is challenging (laughs) to me because I am a professional writer. Yeah, of course. I'm a professional writer. I've been a professional writer since... I mean, forever. Age five. I wasn't getting paid at age five. You should have been, really. I yeah. should have been, right? But I probably got paid for my first joke when I was 20, 21. Mm-hmm. So I've been writing for a minute. And when you, I'm reading my book on an audiobook, I'm still editing this. So I'm thinking, as I'm reading it aloud, I'm thinking, wait a second, this sentence should have should be I should move like this. Oh, this is wrong. Oh gosh, like I, sh- I wish I had more time. So it's like the constant critique of this being like my work. Mm-hmm. So that was really the difficult part, honestly. So at one point when I was recording the audiobook, I put AirPods into my ear and listened to classical music by Johnny Greenwood, the Phantom Thread House score. of Woodcock. Yeah, House of Woodcock. I love that song. And I would listen to that as I was reading so I could relax and just appreciate that appreciate the journey of it. That is incredible. Yeah. And it was really weird. My director, Eunice, said, quote, no one's ever done that, <laughs> which I, th- I appreciated. To get back into what you were referring to earlier, this push and pull between wanting to write these essays, but not wanting to share too much, but feeling like you ought to share more than you previously had. Like, I was thinking, how do you hold that with this upbringing that you had that did value privacy. Yeah. How did you hold all that in putting this into the book? I mean, it was quite difficult. I think that ultimately I work I work through it. So in essays, some essays are completely cut from the book um, because I didn't want to share those facets of my identity. And there are other essays that I really pushed forward because I wanted to share more. So Wikifeet is one of the first essays that was complete for the book. And it was about my feet score being really terrible on wikifeet.com, being rated okay. And over the course of three years, I started to really unpack why I felt so self-conscious about that rating. And so that's an essay particularly that went from being super just, I mean, it was really funny, but it was not vulnerable at all. It was just a straight joke, super like straight satirical. And then it it unpacked into something that was like an examination of what it means to be a public woman. Mm -hmm. So rewriting and writing are my process. And so I held that all together by just like going into essays and thinking, do I enjoy this essay? Is it good? Mm -hmm. Is it worth publishing? Will people appreciate it? Do I appreciate it? And then interrogating that at every turn. For people who are maybe not familiar with what Wikifeet is, how would you explain it? Wikifeet is a photo sharing app that rates people's feet. It gets, I think, 12 million unique visits a month. And I am on it. And I didn't know I was on it until 2019 when my friend found my profile. That led to a lot of spiraling as well as comedic fodder. Does it signify that you've made it if you're on that site? I write in my book that my friend believed, Kelly, believed that me being on Wikifeet was a sign of my fame. Because once (laughs) you're a woman whose feet are on the internet, you have now reached an upper echelon Mm -hmm. of public space. But I, I, when I was on Wikifeed, I this was before the pandemic. This was before my show, mm-hmm. before everything, really. But I had still been coming up as a comedian in New York and had done a bunch of shows, written on shows, been cast on shows. But yeah. Has your rating changed oh, since course. the pandemic? Oh, of course. It's through the roof. It is now 
4.5. I want to say I have beautiful feet, not gorgeous, but beautiful feet. And so every day I am racing to get to the top of that little list. I wish that for you, even though you don't like lists. I hate lists, but WikiFeet, I want to be the number one foot goddess on that site. That's still an aim. That's a tangible goal. I like to have something to hold on to, yes. (laughs) I'll try to give you a memento after this taping. Thank, well, I'm holding onto this cup that I will steal. It will be given to you. Thank you. <laughs> now, At, who's manipulating who? Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, that we'll figure that out at the end. Or whom? I don't know. Is it who or whom? I thought it was like interchangeable. It's not interchangeable, but it has to do with the object and subject of the sentence. Well, you went the Northwestern. You would know. No, I, I learned that from an episode of The Office. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to some of the key influences that shaped all the comedy that people know you from now. You grew up as the middle child of three to Nigerian parents in Lawrence, Massachusetts, a working-class city that had a local paper called the Eagle Tribune that you and your father would read daily, a tradition only rivaled, I think, by ABC World News, which you both would watch every night at 6.30. As a kid, how do you think these programs shaped your interest? I love news. I consume a lot of news. The Eagle Tribune was really popular. They had this thing called the Sunday Funnies, where they had the Family Circus comic. So that was really, really hot in Mm. my elementary school. And ABC World News? I don't even know. I'm not even sure I remember that now. I know. And I was talking to someone at ABC. Was it Peter Jennings, I believe? That sounds right. Right? Yeah, I watched it. And that was during all of the the beautiful era that is the George Bush administration. Mm. So I really got um, American history at its most potent. I heard that from kindergarten to eighth grade, you had perfect attendance. I did. Straight A's. Straight A's. Yeah, I did have straight A's. What was it like to have a decade of never being sick? I think it's not that I wasn't sick. I think it was that I was spreading disease. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> I just took school really seriously. Nigerians take education really seriously. Mm-hmm. Fun fact I think the majority of African immigrants in college in the United States are from Nigeria. Like that's how serious they take it. It's cultural. Mm. I also didn't get the flu until I was 18 mm. in college and I thought I was going to die. It was the worst experience I've ever had. But I treated it like a job. You'll find that I am very, I'm both un- serious and very serious. You write in the book that your father's interest in news, you only understood later to be surprising or I think you, what do you call it? Uncommon or I can't, the way you describe it. I think that um, I can only speak for myself, which is that I did not know what was normal and what was not normal. Right. And so I assumed because I grew up with my parents that that was normal, that reading the news every day and being hyper-informed about local politics was normal. (laughs) And I realized as an adult that that is a choice that people actively make. Mm -hmm. And so that informed the choices that I actively make. What's interesting about my work is that it has a certain, it comes at an intersection of like evergreen Mm -hmm. and topicality. Mm -hmm. The things that I cover are like both pertinent today and you know, two years down the line, like even watching like old YouTube episodes of Baited, it's like how prescient are some of the things that I'm talking about still. I I was rewatching a bunch of them. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Hot. What were the things that you thought were normal that you later felt were not normal? Yeah, I mean, I even have an essay about it called Discomfort, 
where I talk about how normal it was for my parents to absolutely refuse me being allowed to go to sleepovers, Mm -hmm. but how not normal I felt as I rejected constant offers because I was very popular. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, a great example of my experience as a child, which is that my parents were really strict. And so that was normal to me until I realized that that wasn't normal. Was everyone heartbroken that you couldn't attend their sleepover? They thought it was weird for me to constantly be like, no, sorry, I can't leave my house. I don't even know. I've had people from my my past reach out to me about this book, and it's been really compelling. What do you mean? Well, because they, they congratulate me on this book, and I'm, like, examining moments that they are sometimes a part of, and mm. that's really wild to me. We're talking about news, the Eagle Tribune, ABC World News. The other key influence of your work, I think, came, like, your freshman year of of high school. In that first year that I mentioned, there was a teacher that introduced you to both Jonathan Swift and Stephen Colbert. Yes. Do you remember the first time you encountered both of their work? I found it to be deeply radical. But the things that those two particular people got away with saying, obviously, or not so obviously, Jonathan Swift wrote an essay about how citizens should eat Irish babies. And it's like a satirical commentary on how disenfranchised the Irish people were by the Brits. This was um, a modest proposal? Exactly. Um, Indecent proposal or modest proposal? A modest proposal. I think it's modest. Yeah, modest proposal. Indecent would be... I think there's a movie called Indecent Proposal that (laughs) plays off of that, right? I think so. That's the Redford movie. Yeah. Where he tries to buy Woody Harrelson's wife. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Regardless, a modest proposal was such a, it like shook the countryside and got people so riled up mm-hmm. and got Jonathan Swift in so much trouble. And then similarly, Colbert, he, for, he was doing that show daily. The things that he said during the White House Correspondents' Dinner, when mm-hmm. he jokes about shooting someone in the face right next to um, the president of the United States— to comment on Dick Cheney famously, um, you know, <laughs> having an incident in which he famously did do that, um, I found to be groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Like, I did not know you were able to be so honest and so disruptive in your work. And so that really it inspired me because suddenly I, I moved from a space where I felt like I had to be so codified into understanding that there's a world in with satire where you can really say whatever you want. Can we uh, take a look at that Colbert White House Correspondents' Dinner? Sure. All right. I'm obsessed with it. Mark Smith, ladies and gentlemen of the press corps, Madam First Lady, Mr. President, my name is Stephen Colbert, and tonight it is my privilege to celebrate this president. Because we're not so different, he and I. We both get it. Guys like us, we're not some brainiacs on the nerd patrol. We're not members of the factinista. We go straight from the gut. Right, sir? That's where the truth lies. Right down here in the gut. Do you know you have more nerve endings in your gut than you have in your head? You can look it up. Now I know some of you are going to say I did look it up and that's not true. That's because you looked it up in a book. Next time, look it up in your gut. I did. My gut tells me that's how our nervous system works. 
Every night on my show, The Colbert Report, I speak straight from the gut, okay? I give people the truth unfiltered by rational argument. I call it the no fact zone. Fox News, I hold a copyright on that term. <laughs> it's so genius because it is, so, it's, that's 2006. Mm -hmm. It's really actually before we got into like a post fact world. And so I find it to be brilliant. So brilliant. When you saw that, was it one of those like light bulb moments in a movie where you went, oh my God, how the f I didn't know people could do that. A hundred percent. I mean, it's so funny because it also doesn't, it both relies on media and the environment which we live. And it also relies on just absolutely abandoning facts. And it's very <laughs> silly. And so I really appreciate that because I find that it's important for comedy to be like funny. Mm -hmm. And so it allows me to be, to walk the tightrope of being smart and intellectual while also laughing. <laughs> it seems to me that that performance, but also the, the Kobe report in total, served as a kind of template for you in years to come. A hundred percent. You write in the book about a high school memory that, quote, fundamentally changed my brain chemistry, <laughs> which took place during a school assembly between famed director Spike Lee and a fellow classmate. What happened that day and how did it change your brain chemistry? Well, oh, gosh, what happened? We can read from the book if you also if you want to read that passage. Oh, I don't want to read any of my book. OK, that's but fine. do you want to read it? You should read it. I'm not going to read it for you. Why not? I'm no Chet Hanks. <laughs> I think my book deserves to be to be read by a man. I want that on record. I So in my book, I write an essay called Affirmative Actions. It's the last essay in the book because it was the hardest essay to really figure out for me, even though it's one of the first essays I wrote. Yeah, broken but, uh, into three parts. Mm, yeah. And so I wrote about affirmative action, especially in this climate of like it being canceled. And so I remember in high school, we would have these guest speakers and all of them were sort of iconic. But Spike Lee came to speak and I loved his speech because it was so groundbreaking and like revolutionary and fundamentally caused so much raucous, where Spike Lee gets on this tangent about how race is a merit, which made the student body lose their mind. When you say lose their mind, what did that look like? I mean, we just were having conversations about race being a merit or not being a merit at a time when I was specifically applying to college. And <laughs> I mean, you don't, you're just catching shrapnel at that point, 18 years old, 17 years old, not equipped to have these conversations. Uh. This was pre-Tumblr, where I found that the Gen, Gen Z, which I identify as Gen Z, but Gen Z really has a lot of the language around like intersectionality and microaggressions and whatever that I didn't have growing up. I was like, man, I just don't feel good. <laughs> and so I was not equipped to have these conversations, but found myself in these con conversations constantly. It was probably the first time in my life that I was required to really think about the context of my body in any space. So in the exchange where Spike Lee says that race is a merit, someone came up to the microphone and said, sort of challenged him on the idea that race was a merit. 
and talked about how people were taking their spots. And that was sort of the argument around affirmative action, right? Is that do these people deserve to go to these schools if they don't necessarily have the quote-unquote grades or the skill set or the talents? Um, What constitutes a good college applicant? What constitutes a good college body, student body? And so this, like, teenager was challenging Spike Lee um, about race. And it was just such—it was wild. Like, it's it's something that's imprinted in my brain. The teenager said, My question is that people should pull themselves up by their bootstraps— to succeed, and only then they can achieve the American dream. My question is, are we doing minorities, African Americans, Black Americans, no favors when we give them our spots on elite schools like Yale and Harvard? I don't think that's a direct quote. I think that's honestly my memory of it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how... Paraphrase. Yeah, I like. I don't know how accurate it is. It's more about like the sentiment I felt. But the reason why I like to redact people's names, honestly, is because I think that these stories are less about the individuals and more about what they represent, mm-hmm. right? Because affirmative action has been fundamentally repealed in the United States of America, specifically in colleges, right? And there are several organizations working to get protections in jobs removed as well. So it's not an individual's idea. It doesn't belong to one singular person. This is a groundswell of people mm-hmm. who believe this. And so why I'm obsessed with this moment is because it so perfectly crystallized during my childhood what is still very relevant today. And someone asked me recently, like, what do you think about affirmative action being repealed? And the truth is, like, I went to college. <laughs> I got my degree. It's not my problem. It's my maybe my children's problem if I ever choose to have any, if the world exists in that much time. But it's not something that I have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. But how can you not start to ruminate on the like c- political climate? It was repealed this summer. Yeah, exactly. Six to three. Yeah. Can we go back? The thing you said that was fascinating, The um, that was the first time you had those conversations like that that moment sparked a bunch of dialogues in high school Mm. what was that like to have those conversations at, at that point difficult they're deeply uncomfortable conversations to have with your friends yeah it's deeply uncomfortable to talk about race society yeah you've done a good job of of doing it. I mean, my show is deeply, or or my work, rather, is deeply uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah. I employ tension in my work. And so tension and then the relief, a relief of tension is, that's just a tool I use. Are you employing tension now? No, not at all. I'm honestly just thinking. But maybe m- my body... Well, your arms you are tense. Cr- no, your arms are crossed. That's why. Yeah, this is my thinking, but, but I'm also leaning back looking at the ceiling because I'm honestly trying to, like, take your questions at face value and offer a, a sincere and direct answer. And you have. I hope so. Um, I know because I, I don't, I've read every interview you've done. And I've, I've oh, heard have about, you? Oh, yeah, I've heard Oh, my goodness yeah, gracious. What's the, the underlying theme? What would you think the underlying theme would be? Well, I asked you, how would I know the underlying theme? Because you're in them. Doing I haven't them. read them all. I don't. Sometimes you don't even remember. Have you seen the John Mulaney special, special where he talks about the GQ interview? And he's like, I have no recollection of saying that. I found that to be really compelling mm. because reading that interview before I knew about his journey, 
you just think, wow, comedians are eccentric. <laughs> and then you start to really delve into where he specific, where he was at that time of that interview. And it reveals it reveals so much. So I don't have distance yeah. from the work, from what I, what I say. I think for him, that interview took place with a significant amount of drugs. Yeah. I guess I'm making an observation about what it means to have a record of your conversations mm. and the distance that each year brings in referring back to that record. And the book of I think this book is another record of certainly your feelings and thoughts and to have a paper trail. I know it's wild. It's kind of amazing. I don't know. I so I'm a privacy privacy hive. So part of me is rueful that I exist <laughs> at all on the internet, but I accept that that is a form of, that is that is life. There's probably stuff that I've done that I, I'm not happy about it, but that's, you can interrogate that and make really good books. <laughs> and you have. After the break, more from Z-Way. Hey everyone, this is Sam. As you've probably noticed, the writers and actors in Hollywood had embarked on a historic strike over these past six months. Both guilds have now recently reached a deal with the AMPTP. Thank God for that. Obviously, for a show like ours that has on writers, actors, filmmakers, this has proven to be a challenging time. I'll just be honest with you. It's been difficult to make a show about culture when um, culture has basically been put on pause for the most part. And yet, myself, along with our incredible, incredible team, have continued to make new episodes just about every Sunday. We've done this with authors like Zadie Smith and Washu, musicians like Leve and Ludwig Gorenson, who created the score for Oppenheimer. We had on SD Hyam. We had on reporters like Sam Sanders and Matt Bellany. We did an episode about the border with Beto O'Rourke and my father. We had a conversation with screenwriter Alex O'Keefe at the height of the strike about the conditions of being a modern screenwriter, the state of Hollywood, and really so much more. Through this turbulent, precarious time, we have continued to find stories that I think are worth telling and worth sharing with you. And so if any of those episodes or if any of the episodes that I did not mention have meant something to you, if the show has meant something to you, I would really appreciate if you shared the program on social media or with a friend, with a family member, anyone that you think would be interested in the kind of researched, thoughtful, and honest conversations that we try to have here each and every Sunday. You can share and tag us at TalkEasyPod across social media. If you want to drop us a line, you can reach me at sf at TalkEasyPod.com. That's sf at TalkEasyPod.com. Later this year, we'll be starting our newsletter, which we are very excited to do and put out. But until then, sharing the show or reviewing it on the platform that you're listening to this right now. I know every podcaster talks about it, but it really does help us continue doing the work we so love to do here each 
and every week. And with that, I hope you enjoy the rest of my conversation with Z-Way. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. (laughs) 
when you went to Northwestern, you double majored in radio, television, and film, and African-American studies. Yes. You wrote lots of poetry, probably even more tweets. When you got that internship at Comedy Central, was that where you found the template for the kind of work you wanted to do professionally? I think it deconstructed the mystique around entertainment, which is really fundamentally just office jobs. (laughs) Specifically, being a writer is just an office job. Mm -hmm. I thought it was so glamorous. When you're an intern, you get into the rooms and you realize, oh, these are just regular people with who went to school and have regular lives. And that made it really accessible. And so I was able to strive for that profession because I knew it was something within my reach versus something I thought was far away. How quickly did you realize that? Well, I got a joke on on Colbert Report as a an intern. Mm-hmm. And so I was I felt very cocky. <laughs> I was like, wow, I started dabbing. I was interning there the week of George Zimmerman's right. trial, Proposition 8. And then I think Edward Snowden had also fled the country. And so it was, a. Re- I mean, talk about, American politics are so weird because everything has just started, it's a flood, a uh, flood yeah. of news and a flood of watershed events. Um, I'm tired, actually, of existing in a space <laughs> where historical moments are constantly happening. I thought you were just going to end the sentence after existing. I'm tired. No, I, existence, uh, I'm cool with it. Indifferent? Mid, yeah. Mid. <laughs> that week you mentioned, you got the joke on the air. Then a jury reached a not guilty verdict in the Zimmerman Trayvon Martin case. Yeah. You called that moment your own racial awakening in the book. What did that awakening look like? Wow. That's what it looked like. Wow. Shocked. Shock. I was shocked. I was young. You're 21, something like that? Yeah, something like that. Young. I was young, and I didn't know what I had. This was the first viral story like that, Mm. and I found it to be really eye-opening. It was shocking. That was a wild case. We're still talking about it today. Yeah. This little, this town in Florida. It's funny. There are people older than me, because we're basically the same age. I remember. 19, yeah. Both 19. <laughs> goo goo gaga. Goo goo gaga. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that moment feels like a precursor to what was to come because it seems like your professional success often arrives on the heels of or in response to these national tragedies. Because again, I'm thinking of November 9th, 2016, the day after Trump was elected, was also the day you filmed your first episode of Baited Mm. with Z-Way on YouTube. After he won, were you like, I need to make this show? No. Also, that day is not a tragedy to a good portion of the country. So that's all about perspective. Well, it's a tragedy for the person asking the question. Got it. I think that I don't feel at any point in my day that what I'm doing is necessary. Mm -hmm. That would be wild Mm -hmm. and deeply disturbing. But I am a human that exists in society. And so I have a response to the world around me. And particularly with my work, like it allows me to process the Mm. news. And my trauma response is to like joke about it. I'm really stuck on the thing you calling your work not 
necessary. I didn't say it was not necessary. What did you say? It was that— That I don't move through the day and think, wow, this is so necessary. My work is urgent, but also it is evergreen. So the things that I was talking about in 2016 are still hot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You write in the book about the um, piece of advice that that Ira Glass has about the gap. For those who don't know, it's like, in the beginning, you make art because you have good tastes. And like that's what got you into making all this work. Mm. But in the beginning, there's this gap between the good work you love and the bad art that you're probably making. And your taste is why your work disappoints you, because what you're making is not particularly good at the start. But eventually, over time, if you, if you keep at it, that gap closes and your work is as good as your ambitions. And I wondered if it felt like the gap closed for you during the pandemic when you started making those Instagram Live interviews? No, not at all. I thought my work was good in 2016. I thought my work was good in 2019 when I interviewed, like, Aparna. And also, I did the New Yorker Fest, and they showed... What was really humbling about doing that was that they showed a clip of me talking to Rose McGowan on IG Live. And I was really humbled by the fact that the audience was laughing at this this live interview I did in 2020 Mm -hmm. in my bedroom in Bushwick. So while I'm working through my comedy. I think it's I think it's good. <laughs> so the gap to me I'm like, oh well, there there's no gap. I see no gap. No thigh gap versus You never you never had to close a gap. So it, there are two answers and there are two sides to the sword because every joke I tell I'm like, is that the last joke I'll ever tell? Will I ever tell a good joke again? Mm-hmm. But then also there's a part of me that is really trying to impress myself in that moment. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know how to answer your question in a way that feels accurate. I don't feel like I've closed the gap at all. But conversely, I do feel like the work that I'm doing or have done at that moment, I really enjoyed. That's a good answer. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, the That one that you mentioned with Parna is like unbelievable. Wild, right? That was like so hard to do, too. Was that where you learned the power of editing in post and and reconstructing people's words? Oh, yes. I think that is. But I would have to to rewatch every single interview I've ever done to answer that with accuracy because, but I feel like it was a fundamental breakthrough because the interview was so deeply (laughs) difficult. She was, Aparna Nantrilla is such a deeply sweet, kind, not problematic person. I left interviewing her and thinking, wow, what a mistake. Why, like, like we did not hit the game at all. And as I was editing the interview with this editor named Corey, I found, we found that the way to make it work in the game of the show was to edit, (laughs) was to employ the, like, sound bite (laughs) culture of that current time. Is this person a model minority? Yes. Tiger Woods? He's a model minority for golf and adultery. Wow. I think if you win anything with the word master in it and you're a minority, you're winning. That logic is sound. Nah. Uh, Tyson Becker. Yeah, model. Yeah, he's hot. Not dated. OJ Simpson, is he a model minority? I'm going to say no. He's a minority. Yeah, but he hasn't modeled, has he? 
Untainable. Yes, Tooth Fairy. Yeah, he's great. Here's my controversial stance. Okay. I think of The Rock not even as a human person. You're dehumanizing this person of color. I think he's better than people. Master debater. Could you say one, just before we go, one thing that'll make people go, wow. Black Lives Matter. And that's the show. This is Aparna Nancherla. Coming back, when you look at those IG Live interviews, there's like an immediacy and an intimacy to them because anyone watching is feeling like a kind of secondhand mortification of seeing people fall into traps that you are very much setting for them. Yeah, certainly. I think that the timing of those Instagram Lives were really, really mapped onto like the discourse trademark of media. So if you think about like Oprah Winfrey in the early aughts, you think about particularly her interview with Tom Cruise and how shocking it was, right? The jumping on the couch? It was a spectacle. Like no one had any expectation of how that would go, including I'm sure the, the guests and the host. I feel like we've moved into a really manicured presentation of interviews and that Instagram Live, Instagram Live and live television in general doesn't allow you to have the same amount of control Mm. um, and sheen and edit so that everyone is experiencing everything in real time. What's really fun about live is that one, it's the moment is the moment and you all create it together and it never happens again because you never have that alignment of people and the tech working in the exact way and the timing and you tell the jokes slightly different. Everything is so new. And so that's why I think that those interview popped is because you have the the contrast of like a really wild and high stakes conversation and then really urgent response of everything being live and happening in real time. And then me being so unserious. The comments, (laughs) I actually thought, really made the show because they were so deeply unserious. But yeah. The comments. The comments were beyond. (laughs) I I remember, and wow, the comments were like Io and Zach Fox and Quinta. Just so many people were, were in the comments. Gabrielle Union. When we were deeply isolated because of this indefinite pandemic, we were allowed to come together at this like appointment of Thursday at 8 p.m. for this weird performance of like Americana. I want to take a listen to one of those clips with Caroline Calloway. Now, I saw on your Instagram that you were promoting Black authors like um, Wesley Laurie, who wrote They Can't Kill Us, and The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Austin and Channing, to... let's fucking go! Totally tiny. Layla Safad, like, exactly. let's go! Now, you're a vociferous reader. How many of these books have you read? Honestly, of the nine books that I recommended on my Instagram, I've read four. Wow. And But, I, but I've ordered the other five from Black Bookshops, so I would like my ally cookie now. There are no cookies in this game. We're talking about how, like, compelling the live wire act of it all, the tightrope. When you go to make the show at Showtime, did you have to rethink how you would approach an interview since it wasn't live anymore and that it would be pre-taped and and edited? Of course. But I have been doing this for a minute, so I had, like, 
Aparna and Gary Richardson and Sudi Green and Matt Rogers and all of those interviews prior to sort of rely on like, okay, this what does this permutation look like? Like mm. for me, like my comedy and work build on each other. Like they're not silos. So what I do in live shows builds on like how I would treat an interview, which builds on like how I would approach fashion week. Like they all exist um, in conversation because I am a singular being, like there aren't duplicates of me. Mm -hmm. And so that permutation was influenced by the work I had done before. In two seasons of making the show, Mm -hmm. it in many ways originated from a program that you were making in your bedroom in Bushwick. Mm -hmm. You then took it out of your house and into a studio-like setting at Showtime. Mm -hmm. That process of writing and acting and hosting and managing and making it all happen. How did you handle all of that? I really looked up to... So we don't, I feel like as a culture, we don't talk enough about how much of a pathfinder Issa Rae is because she really kind of started the YouTube to television Mm -hmm. industrial complex. And when I was coming up in New York before anything had happened, I remember really latching onto awkward black girl and the popularity of that and how she turned that into the juggernaut that is insecure in her career. And so if you're asking me how I prepared for the position of running my own television show or writing about running my own television show, Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of that had to do with me like seizing opportunity on my own, not waiting for anyone to come and save me, but really being active in my own activation. And so that meant like producing like on YouTube, baited and other iterations of it Mm -hmm. that were flops. No one watched it. Mm. It cost me money that I didn't have. Or doing constant live shows that sometimes people would go to, uh, but initially no one would attend. And then eventually they started to really pop. And making a name for myself coming up in New York as a writer and producer and pop star. And so the alignment of me finally having the opportunity to to be in a studio and work through what that looked like came at a time when I, as an artist, was really prepared for what exactly I wanted to say. And then the challenge is that it's now collaborative, Mm -hmm. that I am no longer the judge, jury, and executioner. (laughs) Like, there are several people involved in making this come to life. But I am collaborative. Like, I come from an improv space. I come from a live show space. So I enjoy having the pressure of being like, I don't know, this is what I'm thinking. You take it and run with it. And I found really great people to collaborate with. So to answer your question, how did how did I prepare for that? I mean, every facet of my career has prepared me for the next facet of my career. Mm -hmm. Like, I get a lot of questions that are like, what are you going to do next? And I'm doing it. (laughs) I'm working through my identity. (laughs) Yeah, you're like crossing that out. Um, I'm working through what my art looks like at every single turn. The thing you're talking about is uh, you had failed enough to be prepared to succeed, I think. Yes, and that is a direct quote from my book, right? I had failed enough to be prepared to fail again. (laughs) Um, Life is a series of failures, 
and successes, but mostly failures. Do you see the show's cancellation as a failure? No, not at all. I wish I could say that I did. I think I kind of ate. I think everyone ate. Um, So you didn't take it personally? No, I didn't take it personally. I think I did a great job, and I think it was a success, and I think that people love me. Have you um, looked on Twitter to see the amount of people that are outraged that it's not coming back? No, I no, I don't. But people send me things, which I actually don't appreciate when people send me like tweets and articles. What kind of things do you not want to be sent? I, I talk about this in my book, James Baldwin and oh, was it, it wasn't Lorraine Hansberry. Maya Angelou. Maya, Maya Angelou had this conversation about what it means to be a successful artist. Mm-hmm. And they talk about specifically the dangers of getting high on your own supply right. and real and perceiving yourself as, quote, necessary or as, quote, a success and having to constantly chase what that success looked like to that group of people at that time and not being really present in your work. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it really helps me to have two feet on that ground because I am still alive. I'm not dead. And so I must (laughs) engage with the world through art until my last breath. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that means that I don't really focus on critical acclaim or critical disdain. I focus on how others interpret it. And I say, oh, was that intentional or was that unintentional or Mm -hmm. interesting that they interpret it that way? And then I like shut my computer and like keep going (laughs) um, and thinking. That passage is really great. Thank you. I mean, I didn't, I just copied it. I know. I'm glad you copied it for people to see because they're talking about if you buy into other people's interpretations of you, whether as a success or not, that you will you will be someone else's version of yourself. I am constantly confronted with others' perception of me and having to interrogate that. Like, that is constantly being projected onto me. What do you mean? I find that people have an idea of me, um, whether it's that I'm scary, or whether it's just that I'm constantly hilarious and sweet, <laughs> whether it's that I am a serious person, trademark, or an unserious person, trademark. People have perceptions of me, but I, I like put my fingers in my ear, la, 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 and I just have to be grounded in who I am to myself, mm. because that is the only thing that's going to guide me. Um, people have hated me in my work before. Like I no, I, I've been doing this for long enough that no one was looking. Mm-hmm. And then you you pop and then people are like, okay, this is what people like about you. Do that. And it's like, well, actually, I got to this journey by just having an understanding of myself. I like that. Yeah. It's a lot to interrogate. It's too, it's um being perceived. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your review of the show? Yeah, being perceived. Great. We'll put that on the uh, the Apple reviews. <laughs> Z-Way says, um, I only have two things left. Okay, sure. You know how you saw Colbert as a, as a template for the kind of work you wanted to make? When you see other comics, do you think they're using you as a kind of template now? Because there's another show on Netflix called Not So Awkward. Oh. <laughs> that genuinely replicated your set like are these homages to you or would you use a less charitable word i don't think anyone has made it until they've made it to bollywood one 
And I can't speak to them being homages or not. That's like a question for the individuals who you feel my work influences. My like comedy exists in an oeuvre that goes before me, right? Like mm-hmm. Zach Galifianakis, Colbert, like Eric Andre, Nathan Fielder, Sasha Baron Cohen. That's right. Like you can see their work in my work and Oprah Winfrey. Like you can see their influences. And I mean, what artist is worth their salt if they are not moving art in any direction for the better or for the worse? And so part of my job is mm-hmm. to create and create something new. And if that inspires a multitude or an individual, I am fortunate. That's a very polite answer. <laughs> Why are you laughing at me? Yeah, I'm laughing because I think this is funny. The whole podcast? No, specifically where we were and where we're going. What's your next question? You know, where we're going is where we're wondering where you're going to go. Where you're going and where where are you going and where have you been? Have you read that short story by Joyce Carol Oates? I have yeah. a long time ago. Impactful. She's a talented writer. Um, but... If Colbert was the template for you, Mm. he stopped doing the Colbert report and went to another format, doing the doing the late night show. Mm. And so I guess I'm wondering, is there a new template that you're following? Is there something else you want to do now? Or do you do you see his path as a something that you want to follow? Like, would you leave a character that you created behind to do a late night? talk show like him? Is that something you're thinking about? I think that the world has changed so much in a year, in two years and five and ten. So I think that what my heroes have done is not duplicatable. Is that a word? Cannot Cannot be, be duplicated. Cannot be duplicated. Simply because they hit their moment at that moment, and that moment cannot be copied. Like, George Bush is such an icon, and you will never have that icon in the White House again. Uh, He served two terms. And so I am not trying to repeat the successes of others, but I use their work as an influence for me in thinking, okay, this is a reference point. Like, how do I want to adjust? I really don't know what's next. I promise that I will always do interviews in some capacity in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. I have a bunch of unreleased interviews like in my heart, my hard drive somewhere um, that I will work and release at my leisure, but or maybe I'll never release them. You know, I, I read somewhere that Beyonce has like 10,000 hours of songs, yeah. right? So that's part of being an artist, not to compare myself to Beyonce, but that that to me, I find that so much more so impressive to think that this brilliant songstress has a lifetime of work that we may never see. Yeah. And that's part of her process. Mm-hmm. My process, I don't know where what's going to happen, but I'm I, I'm going to meet every moment as prepared as I can be. But we'll see. TBD. In 2016, you did an interview with um Amy Poehler's Smart Girl oh, yeah. website. Here's what you said when they asked you about your dream job. Okay. What's your dream job? To be a television host. I look up to Oprah. A late night host would be amazing. If I could break through that barrier for late night television, it would be a self-actualization beyond anything. I'm even getting emotional talking about it. Everything I've ever wanted or dreamed of, interacting with politicians and business people, writing comedy about it, that's what I would love to do. I want to interact with interesting people and make brilliant things. 
I think that's still true. I want to interact with interesting people and make brilliant things. As far as my, I mean, I feel like I did that job. <laughs> yeah. Right? So how do you continue to expand? What happens after you make the iPhone? <laughs> right? What happens? I had a lot of impatience when I was coming up. I would always think, why isn't it breaking through for me? When is it going to be my turn? And then I feel like everything happens so organically. And I'm so grateful for having the grace and the time to learn and to grow um, with the universe. Mm. And so similarly, I am going to let go of my need to constantly control the outcome of things and just receive whatever the universe offers me. Well, with that, I thank you for somewhat letting go of the interview, interviewee back and forth. You, you, you mostly let go of your hosting duties. Thank you. For me, I people, I actually get this a lot as a comment on podcasts, but I thought podcasts were a conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I appreciate going back and forth because I expand as you expand. Isn't the universe constantly expanding? It, it is, famously. T, T famously. Is Newton, Newton? Is that uh, Newton? <laughs> <laughs> Let me look at one of your references here. Um, Z-Way, thank you for, what do you say, being perceived? I hate perce being perceived. Well, I appreciate you indulging uh, me and everyone listening. <laughs> Thank you for having me. This was such an experience <laughs> of expansion. Anytime. <laughs> Bye-bye. Great. And that's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to leave us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you do your listening. As I said in the interstitial, if you want to go above and beyond leaving a review on Apple, sharing the program on social media, all of it is still, even in 2023, the best way for new listeners to find the podcast. I want to give a special thanks this week to the teams at AMPR Group, Abrams Books, and of course, our guest, Z-Way. To order her new book or to find her upcoming tour dates, be sure to visit her website at zway.com. If you'd like to hear other episodes with great performers, I'd recommend Tessa Thompson, Pedro Pascal, Quinta Brunson, Natasha Leone, Tom Hanks, Fran Lebowitz, and Oscar Isaac. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to join our mailing list, drop me a line at sf at talkeasypod.com. That's sf at talkeasypod.com. You can also purchase one of our mugs that come in cream or navy or our vinyl record with Fran Leibowitz at talkeasypod.com slash shop. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our music is by Dylan Peck. 
Our illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Photographs today are by Julius Chu. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Kira Posey, Tara Machado, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with another episode. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.